You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Beginning of uh, yet another encounter that David is going to have with Saul. And it will appear as though God has delivered uh, Saul right into David's hands. Uh, but the reason for that we will um, discuss this morning. Here is the way that the writer of 1 Samuel records it. 1 Samuel 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. And now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day which the Lord, uh, here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And David rose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. And if you would, would you bow with me? Father, we ask this morning that you would make these words that are yours clear to us Father, um, they would not return void on our lives this morning. Father, as we look at, at what has been recorded and inspired by your Spirit, Father, would we um, realize this morning it, it doesn't just say something and it doesn't just mean something, but Father, your Word does something. So, Father, I pray it would who would have its way with us this morning. We ask all of this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, we are. We're looking at David and uh, this encounter with Saul in the cave, which is one of the most interesting and intimate and embarrassing, if you will, uh, moments uh, in this story. And we find it where Saul is um, going to be in this cave and he's, he's absolutely vulnerable. That's one way to say what's going on in the cave. And David uh, is there, and it, it, the Lord is just, has brought, it appears, Saul uh, right there for the slaying, if you will. And yet David's not going to do that. And in fact, what David does do, he'll find his, his conscience stricken uh, by the action that he does take. I'll begin by, by uh, uh, telling you a story. Um, my sister, I have a, there's five of us, my, uh, the middle of all of us is a, 
uh, my sister Sarah. And uh, Sarah has one of the most interesting lives and always has great stories to tell. And one of those stories um, is related to another topic of lots of great stories in our home. And it is an old uh, blue Pontiac minivan uh, that lived in our home for a long time. We called it Free Willy. And I don't know if you've heard me talk about Free Willy or not. But, um, you know, she's a single mom, five kids. She's got this minivan, and we literally drove it until it would drive no more. In fact, the last month of its life, it only went in reverse. But somehow, still managed to get from point A to point B. But Free Willy uh, was a lot of things, but uh, Reliable was not one of them. And my sister at the time, she was a senior in high school. She was, the, uh, she was a squad captain um, at our high school for this thing called Cougar's Pride. You can think about much like the, uh, you know, Robert E. Lee Bells or something like that. So uh, Cougars Pride, and she's one of the squad captains, which means every week at the football game, each of the squad captains took turns uh, being in charge of helping set up the field with decorations, home games anyway. And so Sarah, um, she had volunteered for homecoming and was super excited about that and had, had everything that you needed um, from a, uh, a cheering standpoint uh, loaded up in the back of Free Willy, ready to head to Shotwell Stadium to unload all this into the field so that when the team comes out and it, all those things. So Free Willy's packed um, from top to bottom with all of this, and as it turns out, my sister, like usual, was running late. And so she flies into the parking lot at Shotwell Stadium, and Shotwell, the stadium, actually, you come in on a parking ground, but the the field itself is kind of sunk down, and she drives up and realizes I've got all these things to unload, all these things to take to the middle of the field. She drives up, sees that the gate's open, and decides that that is the providence of God. And so she takes free Willie because she'd seen ambulances go up and down the ramp, so she decides it's a great opportunity. She's going to, nobody, they're not playing, you know, people are still coming in, it seems kind of quiet. So she takes free Willie, she drives free Willie down the ramp and out across the field into the middle of the field. It gets worse. <laughs> so there she is, and all the girls, and they're frantically unloading, and they're feeling the pressure. We've got to get this minivan off the middle of the field as quickly as possible. And so they do. They get all of that unloaded. Sarah jumps into the driver's seat, turns the ignition on, and Free Willie is as dead as a doornail as Charles Dickens would say. And there is no moving this thing. And not only that, they're down, so they, the girls pathetically begin to try to push Free Willy from one end of the field to the other, and they, find, they get it to the deal, but they cannot in any way get this minivan up the ramp. So they have to go into the locker room and asked the football guys, fully dressed out for their game, if they would come and help. Nine guys it takes to uh, push Free Willy up the ramp and off the field. Just before it is, they have to go. It's a, it's a wonder, it's a maze, it's a race that none of them pulled anything or hurt themselves before the game, but they did. It um, is one story and a string of stories 
not just Sarah's life, but in my family's life, of um, looking for a shortcut. I imagine there are shortcuts in your story as well. You know, the reality is that we live in a day of shortcuts. I mean, we don't like to wait. We, we don't actually like to wait for anything. I asked my friend the other day, I said, you know, how many times a day do you Google something? I mean, something's in your mind, and you think, well, I wonder what the answer to that is. And so you pull up your phone or you, you, on your computer, and you Google, I mean, you know, what, what you know, was the number one hit in 1989? Because for some reason it's stuck in your head, and you can't go on the rest of your day without knowing was the number one song in 1989. I mean, there is no question that is really left unanswered in our world. There is not anything we seemingly do not have access to. And so I think what the reality is, is we have become, in in all the good things that that is, look, there's there's tremendous good in, in the ability to be able to do that. But in all of that, I think what has happened is we have lost the ability. We have lost the art. We, we have forgotten that life is sometimes, many times, about waiting. Cultivating the art of waiting. Waiting well. I mean, we want our internet at the very highest speed. In some ways, we want our life be at the highest speed. You know, the, the, the internet slogan of the company, you know, the, the speed of now. That's what we want. And for some reason, we have equated that if it is slow, it is wrong. If it is not now, then it is not right. And, and I think what we'll be challenged to see this morning in God's Word is that by the very nature of how we were created, by the very nature of who we are as human beings, by the very nature, I will argue, of being created in the image of God means that part of our life is spent, much of our life is spent waiting and resting and seeking the Lord. Proverbs 3 will tell us, trust in the Lord with all your heart, Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. He will make your paths straight. Not not immediately. Not now. Not tomorrow. Maybe not next week or next month. or, Or ten years from now will it seem as though He has fulfilled that promise. What does it mean to wait in the Lord? What does it mean? What does it mean to know God's will and yet to wait on God's time? To know God's will but to trust in God's way. See, that's what we're going to be confronted with this morning. This is what David is is doing. It begins by telling us, look, when Saul returned from the Philistines, He was told where David was. And David was in, here in in verse 1, you know, chapter 24, verses 1 and 2 and 3. He's in hiding in the the caves in En Gedi. 
We left off last week in chapter 23. David, he was, uh, Saul was hotly pursuing David. Saul almost caught up with David. It's this breathtaking moment. It appears as though Saul and his men are about to overtake David, are about to seize David. Saul was out for blood. The, the moment appeared as though Saul were going to strike David down. All of a sudden the message came. The Philistines are over there. And Saul gets drawn away. And David is saved. And here and just in a breath later. Saul has managed the situation with the Philistines and now he is back and he picks up his pursuit of David. You, you might think if you're David, I mean, when is this going to end? I mean, it's kind of this roadrunner and coyote cartoon. I mean, it, it, it appears as though, I mean, it, it never ends this pursuit of David. And I think and we are to be reminded that in this life, and while we live and while we breathe, our victories are not permanent victories. Our successes in the spiritual life are not permanent here and now the enemy will keep coming. Oh, there's a there's a day when it ceases. There's a day when that's over. There's a day when the victory is final. The success is forever. But we never are at a place in our life where our guard is let down. And if you'll notice what Saul has brought, he's brought more than he has ever had before. And not only that, it says there are 3,000 chosen men of all of Israel. He, he's brought the elite soldiers. And then it says, by God's providence and um, nature's calling, if you will, Saul makes his way into one of the caves there in En Gedi to relieve himself. And it literally means to relieve himself. So he's in the cave and he's alone. I mean, it's not something he would have been accompanied for. He goes to the cave and he's alone and he seems unarmed. He's vulnerable. I mean, li literally, he's there. And these caves, if you've been over there and if you've ever have an opportunity to go with us over to Israel, you find these, you can see these caves. I mean, you can be all in this area. You can see this, you know, it's like a hole in the in the side of a cliff or up, you know, in the rock face, and you can walk in, and, and, and they're cavernous. I mean, they're they're huge. They, you know, shepherds would have known. David was a shepherd. It, you could, you know, as many as 600 sheep you might be able to pile in there to save from a weather event that would have come up or protect them at night or in David's case, to go and to hide with all of his men. So presumably Saul goes in, he's there at the entrance, David and his men, they happen to be in the same cave, which is quite remarkable because there's lots of caves. There would have been a lot of opportunities, places, and of all the places Saul chooses, 
he chooses the place that David and his men are hiding in at the back of the cave. And they realize, oh my goodness, here's Saul and David's men. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Cut his head off. It's how the song originally went. And... um, because everything in it seems like, David, here's the opportunity. Saul has been brought by God to our very presence. There's no one around. We don't even have to fight anybody. David, you can go cut his head off before he even knows what happened. I mean, you think about this for a minute. David is the leader of these men. These men have... have fought with David and for David and they're following him. He's their leader. And in fact, so much so that when the pressure's on, not just from the enemies on the outside, not just from the Philistines, but man, Saul, the the king of Israel, the, the king in the land that they are a part of, is pursuing them relentlessly. Saul has made himself an enemy of David. There he is. They've been on the run with David, and now it appears Saul's been delivered to them. David can take care of Saul. The victory will be won, and they will not have to flee anymore. Moreover, David, David's already been anointed by Samuel. He is the next king in God's line. He's been anointed by God. It's a promise. God I'm, I'm going to establish I mean, you're going to be the king. There's even greater promises coming for David, we'll see. So everything about it would have been, David would have seen this as an opportunity. This is God's providence. He led him right here. I mean, everything about it said, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to do. I know I'm supposed to be king. Saul's in the way. I'm on the run. Saul's the reason. Let's get rid of Saul. We don't have to be on the run anymore. I will go and and assume the kingship. Everything about that makes sense, except for the fact that there is a check in David's spirit. And we find out really what it is here in a moment, but look at what happens. David will go up, he will he will creep upon him, um, he will not harm Saul. Actually, what he does is he'll cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and you, you can imagine the scene. There are the men, they're waiting to throw the party, you know, begin singing. You know, shouting, the king is dead, but David creeps up silently and in the moment doesn't end Saul's life, cuts off a corner of his robe, and then when he comes back with a corner of the robe, you can just imagine the disappointment for his men. It tells us in the text, in uh, verse 5, that afterward, David's heart struck him. His, his conscience got him. I mean, he hadn't killed him, but, but he had gone too far. Whatever this act was of cutting off this piece of the robe, David had gone too far. Some scholars believe that, that this act of, of cutting this, this royal robe would have been symbolic of David saying, I, I now stake my claim on your kingdom. I've, I've taken it from you, a, decor- a declaration that, that Saul's kingdom was now his. I mean, but regardless of, of what it meant, David knew what it was in his 
heart, and he was convicted. And the question becomes, why? I mean, what's the problem here? If we are to just simply look at it, we see this as an opportunity, and in fact, we, we might even be tempted, you know, to Instagram it or to Facebook it as a, as a God opportunity. Well, there's no coincidences, but there are God instances, right? I mean, this is one of those, right? It comes down to this. See, David had settled his theology before he found himself in the moment. David had a deep theological conviction about who God was, who God is. And with that conviction came a very real and clear understanding about who David was, who he himself was. His theological conviction rested upon the fact of who God was, who God is. And so because of that, he leans into it. Listen, we've got to settle our theology before we get into a moment. We cannot figure out our theology on the fly. Here's what David knew. He knew two things. He knew that he was the next king of Israel. He knew that God had promised him that, although he didn't know when and he didn't know how it would all come about. But he knew he was going to be the next king. He believed God for that. Here's the second thing he knew, though. He knew that presently Saul was the king. And he knew that Saul was anointed by God. And David knew that once a man was anointed, that that individual was set apart. He was consecrated by God. This was bond that was established in relationship uh, to God. You know, God had set this man apart. Whether this man was fulfilling all that he was set apart for or not, he had set him apart. Saul was God's man in God's time. If, God, if, if Saul were going to be vacated from the throne, that is something only God could do. David couldn't do it. And to touch him or defile him or attack him as the anointed one would in a sense be to defile, to harm, to, to attack God himself. This was David's conviction. And he came to the place of that choice after he sneaked, snuck up on Saul in that moment to realize opportunity does not trump obedience. Our ability to do something is not what makes a thing right. The opportunity to do something is not what makes a thing right. The circumstances being favorable is not what makes a thing right. That's why we have to figure out our theology before we get into a moment because the temptation always will be for a shortcut. The opportunity is as much a test of David 
Listen, the opportunity was there, but David knew there was a check in his spirit, and he knew that because he knew Saul was anointed. He knew that to seize this opportunity for his own good, to put his own suffering to an end, to, to say, well, listen, the kingship's mine. I might as well take it now. For him to do that, he knew was wrong because he knew he wasn't supposed to touch the anointed of God. And he knew obedience was far more important than opportunity. And he had that theology settled before he ever got into the moment. See, that's the temptation of the shortcut. You know how even in our thoughts we get consumed with something and say, I want this. I know it's God's will. I mean, at least I feel it's God's will. I mean, I'm ready. I'm ready to do it. And I'm just waiting for the opportunity to seize. And, and then but the reality is we desire not only God's will, but we desire God's will, God's way. Too often we're after God's will our way. Or worse than that, we actually are after our own will, our own way. See, it works out in our spiritual life, I think, that nothing happens overnight. I mean, listen, we, we, um, it is why I think by nature we are so, um, find ourselves so gravitated to things that offer themselves as, hey, here's the key to your spiritual life. Here's the breakthrough you've always been wanting. Here's the insight that will unlock all of the mysteries and, and, and put your Christian life on some kind of a, of a plane where, where you know you've always wanted it to be and you know where it should be. Here's the thing. Your spiritual life is not something that happens over This process of sanctification, of, of becoming more and more of who we truly are as we're being transformed into the likeness of Jesus, I, I'm here to tell you the Bible offers absolutely no shortcut to that. Here's some other things it doesn't offer a shortcut. And not for a shortcut to your marriage. You, you may, in your marriage this morning, you may be in a place where you think, you know, man, I know this isn't God's will for my marriage. I, I know it's not the way it's supposed to be, and there's so many things to work out, and it seems so hard, and the mountain keeps getting higher and higher, this mountain we have to climb in our marriage, and and I know God's will for me is to be happy in my marriage. I know His will is for my husband to lead spiritually. Or, or I know God's will is for me to lead spiritually. But she just she won't get out of the way. And, or, or whatever it is. And it's in those moments, I'll tell you, we're, we're tempted to mistake opportunity for providence. So it, it, this is, I mean, this is just the time. It's, it's the right time to get a divorce because, man, our kids aren't that much older. You know, I mean, they're, they're still young. They'll, they'll survive this. Or 
Our, our kids are finally gone, and now we—I mean, it's, another, it's okay. I mean, this is the opportunity that we've been waiting for, or whatever. Or he's finally done this thing, or she's finally done this thing, and so now it's my opportunity to to sever this thing. It's marriage. Marriage. It doesn't happen overnight. Or parenting. Or a career. Or financial stability. It doesn't happen overnight. You know, the reality is actually, um, we're not actually promised much of what we feel entitled to in those areas. this is a hard truth. We cannot mistake what God has promised us for what it is we feel entitled to. I feel entitled to financial success at some point in my life. But you never promised me that. You are promised, hey listen, if you're you're generous, God will bless you. He doesn't tell you what that looks like. You are promised that He will meet your needs. You are promised that there is never a thing you walk through. There is never a situation that you're in. There is never something you're feeling or some burden that you're carrying that God doesn't know absolutely all the details about it. I mean, if He knows every bird of the air and every hair on your head, I promise you He knows all of these things. But He has not promised you financial success. He has promised He'd meet your needs. He has not promised you that you would be the somebody or you would be significant in your career, but He has promised you the indwelling, sealing, empowering presence of His Spirit so that you are able to accomplish all that He has called you to nothing less. You are not guaranteed that your marriage will be happy. But you are promised if you love your wife and love your husband that God is glorified in that even if you are not and you never see it. Much of what we feel entitled to, we have mistaken for God's promises. And I promise, if you are operating on what you think you are entitled to, there will be opportunity everywhere for you to seize it. Paul will pray in Philippians 1, 9 and 10. I think it's instructive of why he prays that. For the discernment that we need, we're so desperate for. That your love may abound more and more in, you know what he prays? In knowledge, depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern 
Hebrews chapter 12. You can read chapter 11. It's the Hall of Fame of Faith, which is surprising because you can go through every one of those characters and realize, oh, wait a just really God's faithfulness. Stick out their picture on the wall. Because every one of them is a failure in one way or the other. But then the writer of Hebrews will go on to say this, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with, you know what the word is? Not speed, but endurance. The race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and was seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer of Hebrews is writing it. You finished the chapter yourself this afternoon. He's writing it to a people who find themselves suffering, who find themselves wondering, is this really what life is supposed to be like? And I, I, I don't seem to understand, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't go to those other things. Don't turn backward. Don't reach out for anything else. Trust God in the midst of this because He has saved you by His Son. And your search for temporary relief end up making a ruin of your life. We desire God's will, God's way. I want to show you one more story real quick. If you've got your Bibles, turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 5. <clears throat> I'll tell this story from 2 Samuel 5 quickly. And then I'll wrap this up. You fast forward several years in David's life, some years that we will cover, but Samuel is dead, and Saul has died, and Jonathan has died, and here is David left, and the people of Israel are calling upon him to be the king. Everything in David's life is finally coming to fruition, and only one thing stands in his way of, of, of walking into his kingship and, and assuming the throne, and that is that is the Philistines, as it always is. And in verse 17 of 2 Samuel 5, it says this, When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, but David heard of it and went down to the stronghold It's interesting. He's not on the run, and yet he still goes and he finds the stronghold. The place to pray, the place to commune with God. The Philistines came, and they spread out in the valley of Rephim, and he, there's David in the stronghold, verse 19. And David inquired of the Lord. He, he prayed to God, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. 
One, David did not assume that that was what he was supposed to do. Although, listen, the Philistines are the bad guy. They're always the bad guy. They're the coyotes. I mean, they always are. Plunge down the, the thing to blow up the dynamite, and they end up getting blown up themselves. He knows this. And yet he does not shortcut going to the stronghold, going to his knees, and going to God and inquiring. What seemingly you could say, why are you asking God a question you already know the answer to, David? Because David didn't presume to know the answer. In verse 20, David came to Belpharism, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has burst through my enemies before me like a bursting flood. And the name of the uh, place is called Belpharism. To to give glory to God, he's done this. And here's the danger. Here's where the danger comes. Ready? In verse 21, and the Philistines left their idols there. David and his men carried them away. And then in 22, and David and the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. David, here comes the Philistines. They gather in the valley. David goes to God and says, God, should I go up against the Philistines? If I go up, will you deliver me? And God says, go up against the Philistines. You go out there. You fight them. I'll go before you. You'll have the victory, David. So, I mean, they, they, they end up being defeated and they run off they leave their idols and then the philistines come back they come back to the exact same place to set up war against david exactly like they did just a few verses before and it would be everything in david and everything in me and everything in you to say well look i know what god's will is here all right guys let's go again the philistines came back for round two let's go get them again but i just want you to notice real quickly god's will god's way here In verse 23, And when David inquired of the Lord, goes back to the stronghold, goes back to prayer, he did not presume that opportunity was providence. And he says this, he prays to the Lord, and then God says, You shall not go up. Go around to the rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. But then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the enemy of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Geber. It would have been easy for David to assume that he knew God's will. And you know what? He probably did know God's will. God's will is that the Philistines would be defeated. They're the bad guys. He also could have presumed that he knew God's way. And yet when he goes back to God, God tells him to do something entirely different. In fact, what God tells him to do is to retreat. To retreat and to hide. It's not because God couldn't have defeated the Philistines by David and his men going straight down into the valley and doing what they had done just before. But God has David wait. Why? David waits, and they go get in the balsam trees, and his men are like, I don't know what we're doing here, David. We retreat him. We look like a bunch of cowards. Now we're hiding in the trees. Because this is what God said to do. Be quiet so we can hear him. The wind comes and rustles the trees. 
they find is that God has gone before them and wiped out their enemies. God's will, God's way. Are you willing to wait on it? You know, it's interesting. The greater David, the son of David, the true king, our Jesus, walked through all of these same things as well. The very first thing that Jesus will encounter is he'll be taken into the wilderness after fasting for 40 days. He will encounter the devil himself. Satan will come to tempt Jesus with the shortcut of the kingdom. Listen, you're the Son of God. You know this kingdom's yours. All you have to do is... And then you know what? You can, you can shortcut this whole deal. I'll go ahead and hand you the kingdom right. He is the power of the prince of the air. He is the prince of this world. He conceivably had the ability to hand Jesus everything it is Jesus came to get on his own by the will of his Father, and he's presented with an opportunity to shortcut the entire process, which means he wouldn't have to put up with the disciples. He wouldn't have had to die on a cross. Jesus answered every one of those opportunist statements, every one of those offers with the very words of God. Because not only did Jesus, was he absolutely convinced of God's will, he was absolutely committed to God's way. Which is why you see in Luke chapter 22, he prays, in the garden and he's praying and he's in anguish. He says, I know your will. If there's any other way, I take it. But not your will, my way. Your will, your way. And Jesus will go to drink the cup of God's infinite wrath for your sake and mine. In fact, there's even a moment where he's standing before Pilate in John 18 and John 19, and Pilate says, you're the king of the Jews? I mean, you're, you're a king? Just show me. Don't you know what authority I have over you? And Jesus says, no. You have no authority over me except what's been given to you. My kingdom's not of this world. My kingdom is of the Father in heaven. He'll wait 30 years before he'll step on the scene. Can you imagine that kind of waiting when you know who you are? And then he'll wait three years after that to do what it is he's done. Listen, life is not about success. It's not about your success about your sanctification. It's about becoming who you are as you're being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. It's not about living your best life. Now it's not about becoming your best self. It's about being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And that doesn't happen overnight. It is a metamorphosis that for some it may take a lifetime and you may never see the progress until in the moment you're in the presence of Jesus and you're glorified. In fact, you won't reach the end of it. 
here and now. But she will one. It's not about what we achieve here and now. It's about what was achieved for us in Christ before the foundations of time. And then it was inaugurated 2,000 years ago in history, in time, in space. And the final victory, the consummation of all things that are God's will, awaits us. We find ourselves so easily entangled in all the shortcuts that come our way between now and then must be people who enter into the story of Jesus. When you have trusted Jesus for your life and your salvation, your story is not your own anymore. It's His story, which means it's not over yet, which means it has certainly begun, but there is more and more and more to come. Don't settle for any shortcuts. About orienting our life greater story of Jesus that He saved us into. I fear so many of us are so wrapped up in our own stories and how we think they're going to turn out that we miss. We have been caught up in Christ into the greatest story. The only story. ask you this morning what's your theology seeking God's will are you content to trust him as you wait on his way if you would would you bow with me and let's pray Father I do ask